Welcome to the fourth episode of the podcast on becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. In the previous episode, I looked at the almost bewildering array of ways in which Jesus describes what it means to follow him. We talked about the perennial favorite, born again, but also about the paralytic who was healed because of his friend's faith, the rich young ruler who is told that he must sell all to follow Jesus, and Zacchaeus who promises to give half of his wealth away and pay back fourfold those whom he had defrauded. Then we considered the famous Matthew 25 passage, in which Jesus says that those who fed the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, welcomed the stranger, clothed those who were naked, and visited those in prison, did so as if to him. When Jesus says this, many of his listeners respond that they had never helped him. One of the points of this passage is that doing something kind to others is equivalent to doing something kind to Jesus. But another aspect of this story is just as important. The ones who had acted in a loving way are actually surprised to have their kindness pointed out. When one isn't doing something good to get recognition, such recognition is often surprising. Anyone would do. There was a reason for canvassing what Jesus says. At least in evangelicalism, the born-again metaphor is the one that has been taken as the description of what believing in Jesus is all about. As I pointed out, there is no talk about giving away all one owns in evangelicalism. But the Matthew 25 passage is even more remarkable because it's really the only time that Jesus makes a clear separation between those who are part of Jesus' community and those who aren't. And there is no mention whatsoever about belief. As a young evangelical, I was told that being a Christian required believing in Jesus. But when Jesus describes what's necessary, belief doesn't really enter into the equation. So how exactly does belief fit with all of this? If one goes back to the very beginnings of Christianity, before it had even become Christianity, and Jesus is just another rabbi, one might be tempted to say, as Gertrude Stein famously said of Oakland, California, when she returned, there's no there there. By this she meant, nostalgically, that what she had experienced in Oakland as a child has disappeared, so there was nothing to return to. But I think we tend to have the opposite problem from that of Stein, presuming that there was a there there when there really wasn't much there. Kierkegaard speaks of later followers of Jesus as being disciples at second hand. The advantage that second hand followers have over the original disciples is that they're able to see how everything turns out, which of course is true. But there is the opposite problem that we can put like this. Over the two millennia in which Christianity has existed, there have been some significant developments in Christian doctrine. Conversely, what doctrine, what theological belief was there to believe when Jesus was actively teaching? Certainly one doctrine found in both Judaism and early Christianity was simply that God exists. 
every first century Jew reciting the Shema would have surely affirmed God's existence. However, the religion that grows out of the teachings of Jesus is one that reshapes Jewish beliefs in rather substantial ways. The first gospel, the Gospel of Mark, which goes back to about 66 to 70 AD, presents the disciples as continually confused about who Jesus is. Who do people say that I am, asked Jesus. He gets answers such as John the Baptist, Elijah, and one of the prophets. Then he asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah. Since the category Messiah was highly contested in terms of its content, that Peter recognizes Jesus to be the Messiah doesn't on its own tell us much more than that Jesus was recognized as someone very special. But what exactly does Jesus teach? While well, the basic message boils down to something like, follow me, we have seen that, that what that means gets defined by Jesus himself in continually different terms. Yet there's another way of thinking about faith that makes sense of what Jesus means when he says that his followers must have faith in him. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 6, we read, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. The term translated as believe here is pestusai, which is not about believing a proposition about God, but believing in God. It doesn't mean believing that God exists. Instead, it means something like having a trust in God or a trust in Jesus. In both the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, the verb pisteo never means intellectual assent to a proposition for which there is insufficient empirical proof. Do you see the difference? It's a rather stark difference. Largely because of the Enlightenment, religious believers came to be described as having faith. Indeed, theologians often talk about various faiths, meaning various religions. Yet the problem with the term faith defined in this way is that it can only ever be an inferior version of knowledge. The rise of the Enlightenment came about during the time the physical sciences came to be celebrated as the one true path to knowing. And the very notion of Enlightenment implied that those poor saps back in the Middle Ages lived in intellectual darkness. Of course, this means that empirical knowledge the kind that's based on our five senses, comes out looking quite superior to mere faith, since faith usually gets defined as belief with little or no evidence. This is why we talk about science as giving us knowledge, whereas religion merely gives us faith, that is, beliefs that have very little basis in terms of fact. But when Jesus talks about faith, he doesn't mean that at all. He's not talking about believing something without much evidence. Instead, as Wilfred Kentwell Smith points out, to have faith in Jesus means to hold dear, or to be loyal to, or to value highly, or simply to love Jesus. For Jesus' disciples to believe in him 
they would certainly have had to believe that he existed. That would have been necessary, but as we would say in philosophy, not a sufficient condition. However, their belief in Jesus is not a commitment to a proposition, but a commitment to him. To follow Jesus meant choosing a way of being, and the choice here was whether to follow Jesus or whether to follow someone else. Let me quote here from someone who might not seem to fit into this discussion. That is, the very well-known and highly respected philosopher Alvin Plantica. Plantica's work has focused largely on belief, and in fact he wants to argue in that work that such belief can be justified and true. But he also, at a certain point, makes it clear that belief is not the only thing at issue. Consider this passage from the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The difference, says Plantica, is one of affections. The believer believes but also loves God. Plantica is exactly right on this point. These affections and these beliefs are formed nurtured and put in action by Christian liturgy. But I think the affections are more fundamental than the beliefs. As far as I can tell, that is the clear message of James. Or consider this statement. Christianity is not an intellectual system, a collection of dogmas, or a moralism. Christianity is instead an encounter, a love story. It is an event. That quotation comes from someone one might not expect, Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict. Given Benedict's nickname while Cardinal, God's Rottweiler, it is safe to conclude that this statement could hardly mean that doctrine or dogma is unimportant. Benedict's time as Cardinal Prefect at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was marked by a vigorous defense of the faith and denunciation of many for their heretical views. So at least in his case, there's nothing like a choice between live theology and what we might call academic or speculative theology. Instead, it becomes a question of emphasis or primacy. This has caused me to ask the question, what is really the driving force behind Christianity. I think Benedict is right that Christianity is an encounter and love story, which can only be understood by doing and being. It is not incidental that Benedict's first encyclical is Deus Caritas Est, which begins as follows. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. These words from the first letter of John express with remarkable clarity the heart of the Christian faith. St. John also offers a kind of summary of the Christian life. We have come to know and to believe in the love of God for us. Liturgy that simultaneously relates us to God and to our neighbor and community is more fundamental to Christian faith than that of dogma, both historically and logically. I want to follow that order, history and logic, 
by first sketching out the earliest days of Christian history and then turn to the logic of liturgy and doctrine. Working out all of the implications of the thesis that liturgy is primary to Christianity is a task that I can only begin here. However, before I go any further, I need to make clear that my thesis does not boil down to something as simple as practice is more fundamental than theory. The reason for this point is simple. I don't think that the practice-theory distinction can hold in any strong sense. That is to say, there is no practice without theory or theory without practice. So any attempt to separate them into independent parts is going to be impossible. Aristotle is the very first person, at least that we know, to make a distinction between theoria, theory, and praxis, or practice. It's a useful distinction, at least to some extent. The problem with the distinction, though, is that it could imply that there could be, or either is, something like a theoria divorced from praxis, or praxis divorced from theoria. Aristotle never makes a claim like that. Because, of course, theory and practice always go together. For instance, theoria is something we do, making it ultimately a form of praxis. Put otherwise, thinking about God and making arguments for God's existence are also practices. Even believing in Jesus is something that we do. Thus, there can be no simple distinction between theory and practice or belief and practice. In saying that liturgy is primary for Christians, I'm saying that lived-out beliefs have a primacy over beliefs found in catechisms and creeds. Here it's important for you to understand at whom such a comment is directed. The subdiscipline known as philosophy of religion is almost completely concerned with explaining doctrines, providing arguments for God's existence, and examining the problem of evil, namely why a good God would allow evil to exist. It doesn't take much observation to realize that philosophy of religion is more or less philosophy of Christianity. The God who gets defended looks remarkably like the Christian God. Sure, the other monotheisms, Judaism and Islam, are also implicated in this discussion. But the actual history of the development of the subdiscipline of philosophy of religion shows us that it develops not merely specifically from Christianity, but even more specifically from Protestant Christianity. And that's the reason that most of it is concerned with belief. While there are Roman Catholic philosophers of religion, for instance, philosophy of religion still has little room for or interest in practice like prayer or meditation or even attending church. The main reason for this exclusion is that, from a Protestant point of view, having the right practices isn't nearly as important as having the right beliefs. The Protestant bias comes out in the sense that practices are not seen as all that rational. That despite the fact that anthropologists have made clear that religious practices across the world in various religions are not merely rote or irrational or meaningless. Instead, practices always embody theory. 
there are also ways of knowing. My point is that theory is dependent upon practice for its very meaning. By saying that liturgy is the primary element of Christian life, I'm saying that it is more basic to Christianity than official statements of belief found in creeds and catechisms. Or put differently, how we interpret those creeds and catechisms is always in light of liturgical experience. If I put this even more strongly, we can say this. When liturgical practice is at odds with creeds and doctrines, those creeds and doctrines either implicitly change, that is, we interpret them in a different way, or they are explicitly amended, i.e. they're rewritten, to reflect the liturgical life of believers. Consider the following point. To follow Jesus was originally designated as being part of the way. Jesus identifies himself as he hodos, the way, in John 14, 6. And this became a very common way, the, the way of referring to Christianity. What, though, is the meaning of this term, hodos, way? In short, it has a very concrete meaning, in which it can mean such things as road, path, journey, expedition, and, of course, way. Yet it likewise has a much richer metaphorical meaning as the sense of life's direction or motivation. When Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. In effect, Jesus is saying, are you going to follow me? Have you thrown in your lot with me? With some significant lapses along the way, they basically did follow him. So then what? In his classic study in early Christianity, Wayne Meeks points out that the church's beginnings and earliest growth remain in many respects mysterious. That is to say, we don't know all that much about exactly what Christians believed in those early years. We do know, however, that these beliefs varied widely and that many early beliefs came to be seen as heretical, even though it often took decades or in some cases centuries for a specific belief to be identified as a heresy. For instance, church historians now think that most followers of Jesus in the early first century A.D. were docetists. That is, they believed that Jesus didn't have a normal material body like the rest of us. The name for this view comes from the Greek term dokain, which means to seem, as in, it seemed like Jesus had a normal human body. While the exact beliefs of docetists varied, many of them did not believe that Jesus was actually crucified and resurrected. Further, it was not as if those early followers of Jesus had no doctrines at all, since they were Jews and would have faithfully gone to temple, just as Jesus himself did. All that Jesus taught them was set within a Jewish context of belief. For them to recognize him as Messiah required a thoroughly Jewish context. 
Yet even the years depicted in the book of Acts, that Jewish context is already in flux. Certainly the vast system of doctrines that came to be part of Christianity over centuries simply did not exist for the early church, which means that there was no way they could have believed in them. What propositional content could the thief on the cross have had about Jesus? If you remember, the thief simply says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Even with little explicitly Christian doctrine, the early Christians did have liturgy, that is, a way of being. The best account of the very early church comes from Acts chapter 2. That chapter begins with the story of Pentecost, in which 3,000 converts were reportedly baptized. Then Peter preaches a sermon in which he says that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, and that in order to follow him, they need to change their direction in life, to be baptized, and to be filled with the Spirit. He tells his astounded listeners that Jesus forgives sins, that he is God's Son, and that he is risen from the dead. These teachings would have been the propositional backbone of early Christian liturgy, and one can say that they are still in a kind of encapsulation of Christian belief, which is to say that liturgy needs some kind of beliefs in order to function. But of course, right about now you might be asking, what exactly is this thing, liturgy? The term liturgy comes from the Greek liturgia, a compound of lito, meaning public, and ergos, meaning working or service. The usual translation of this term is the work of the people, though translations like public service or public works would be more accurate. What was this work? Originally, it was the wealthy people of Athens providing funding for sporting events, banquets, and religious ceremonies. Such persons were called liturgists. Given that ancient Greece was thoroughly religious, one service was, by definition, a religious service. This broad sense of liturgy is likewise to be found in the Christian scriptures. Variants of liturgy are used to describe such actions as ministering or ministry along with service and serving. For instance, Paul praises the Philippians for their ministry, liturgias to him, and for the Corinthians for their financial liturgias. Luke at one point uses the term in a way that's closer to the way we use it today, for he describes the church in Antioch as worshiping God, and he uses a form of the term liturgias. But what exactly was this worshiping God? If we go back to that account in Acts 2, we find that these early followers of Jesus devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. But their liturgy doesn't end there. We are also told that, and here I'm quoting, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and that they spent much time together in the temple, and that they broke bread at home, and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. What is striking about Luke's account is he doesn't make any distinction between what we today would consider the worship service bits and the serving the community bits. 
or better put, all of this together constitutes their worship. Spending time in the temple, breaking bread together, and sharing things in common were all part of their liturgy. One of the reasons for examining the birth of Christianity is that we can see how Christian theology grows out of liturgical experience. Of course, theology is itself a liturgical practice. In this respect, the term orthodox, which comes from orthos and doxa, is instructive. In ancient Greek, doxa had to do with belief or opinion. But in the Septuagint, that is the translation of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible into Greek, the verb doxa is used to translate the Hebrew word for glory. So orthodoxy takes on a dual meaning, both proper belief and proper praise. In the Christian scriptures, these meanings are totally intertwined. Doxa always means a good opinion of someone that results in honor, praise, and worship. Let me provide a concrete example of how liturgy leads to theology. With the conversions of Barnabas and Paul, the faith spread considerably wider, and this expansion required a new conception of liturgy and a new ethnic conception of who could be included in the ecclesia. The problem was entirely practical and entirely theological. As long as Christianity remained simply a Jewish sect, Part of it required taking up Jewish practice. However, when Paul proclaims that there is no longer Jew or Greek, he makes possible a new liturgical identity and practice. Greek converts would not be required to engage in classic Jewish rites, such as circumcision, nor abstain from eating foods forbidden to Jews. Of course, this transition from Jewish sect world religion does not come without a fight. Even after Peter's vision in which he sees that the gospel was for the Gentiles as well as the Jews, some Jews in Jerusalem still insisted that Gentile converts needed to observe Hebrew customs. Yet Paul responds that there is a fundamental difference between following Torah and following the gospel. To follow the latter is to be freed from the former. Is this reversal on Paul's part theology? Of course. But it grows out of a liturgical context. The very real existential problem of Jews and Gentiles worshiping together and asking which Jewish customs Gentiles would need to follow to be part of the community. It would not be difficult to analyze various Christian doctrines to show how they grow out of liturgical practice, how worshiping Jesus as Lord, for instance, must inevitably lead to questions about divinity and humanity. Here it's helpful to turn to the interaction between a philosopher who writes on liturgy and a specialist on ritual. First, the philosopher, Terence Cuneo. Cuneo writes, Christianity comes in many varieties, and not all are all belief-centered. This is certainly true of various forms of the Roman Catholic, Anglican, and Mennonite traditions, for example, and might also be true of so-called non-liturgical traditions, such as Quakerism. 
He goes on to say that his tradition, Eastern Christianity, is particularly orthopraxic in nature and that it has much in common with Bell's description of Judaism and Islam, both of which Bell identifies as largely concerned with practice. We'll come back to this in just a moment. But more important for our concern here, Cuneo recognizes the following. For Eastern Christians, the liturgy functions as the centerpiece of the Christian way of life. It is the paradigmatic expression of, of the tradition's mind, the sense of the term mind you're referring not simply or even primarily to various doctrines or claims, but also to ways of conducting oneself and viewing the world, whose rich character and significance might be difficult and perhaps impossible to capture in wholly propositional terms. Well, I think what Cuneo says applies to far more of Christianity than simply Eastern Christianity. I see three important points in this quotation. First, Cuneo rightly gets that Christianity is first and foremost a way of life. It's about one's very being. Second, liturgy is not primarily about affirming a set of doctrines, but about ways of seeing and being in the world, which clearly include doctrines, but not have them as the primary focal point. Third, and closely connected to the second point, liturgical practices are central to the mind of the Christian. They are ways of knowing that perhaps cannot be reducible to propositions, even though the church has always worked to explain its liturgical practices by way of theological beliefs. While Conio speaks of liturgy as ways of conducting oneself and viewing the world, his book still ends up talking mainly about what we do on a s Sunday morning, albeit something that in Eastern Christianity lasts considerably longer than an hour. However, our conception of liturgy needs to be expanded from a few hours to each and every day. In trying to think about how such a broader conception of liturgy might go, it's helpful to follow the distinction made by two Episcopal priests regarding what they call two kinds of liturgy. They speak of intensive liturgy, and they describe that as what happens when Christians assemble to worship God. In contrast, extensive liturgy is what happens when Christians leave the assembly to conduct their daily affairs. Of course, they immediately qualify this distinction by saying the two types are mutually dependent. In fact, they are so dependent that one cannot be thought without the other. Intensive liturgy alone results in what my Southern Baptist friends in Texas called Sunday Christians. That was, by the way, not meant as a compliment. Conversely, extensive liturgy alone would result in lone individuals divorced from the kind of community needed to sustain them. Thus, as our intensive liturgies drive us into the world to do our extensive liturgy, so our extensive liturgies bring us back week by week to the Christian assembly. Let me begin with extensive liturgy, though it will be quickly be seen that it connects to intensive liturgy. Central to the gospel is the idea of metanoia. If we simply extrapolate from meta and nous the roots of this term, we come up with the literal meaning of afterthought. But the real meaning is more like changing one's mind. 
The Gospel of Mark opens with John preaching a baptism of metanoios. That's how Mark puts it. Similarly, Jesus speaks of metanoian in Luke 24, 47. The usual translation of metanoia is repent or repentance. Or you back in the age of the church fathers, Tertullian insisted that penitentium agite, confession of sins or repentance, was an incorrect translation of metanoia. And many have agreed that repent is a bad English translation, despite the fact that it's extremely common. The first problem is that metanoia doesn't really carry the idea of sorrow or looking back upon one's life with regret. There is a good Greek term for that, and it's metamelomai. The second problem is that repentance doesn't begin to go far enough. You could simply be sorry about how you lived your life, but not sorry enough to do anything about it. Instead, metanoia is really about a change of mind or a change of heart. It is conversion. To be converted is not merely to think differently, but to act differently. Conversion requires a significant change in one's being. I should point out here that much of my thinking about the lived nature of Christianity is strongly influenced by the French philosopher Pierre Hadot. Hadot has the distinction in recent philosophy of having vigorously reminded the rest of us who do philosophy that for the ancients and for the medievals, philosophy was always first and foremost about living well. It was, as he puts it, a way of life. There were many theories involved in this, to be sure, but the theories were formulated precisely so that one can live a better, more fulfilled life. Central to achieving such a life was ascesis, a Latin term which he translates as spiritual exercises. For Hadot, ancient philosophy was concerned precisely about practicing such exercises so that we, as he puts it, let ourselves be changed in our point of view, attitudes, and convictions. This means that we must dialogue with ourselves and hence do battle with ourselves. The result of such a dialogue is a conversion which turns our entire life upside down, changing the life of the person who goes through it. What's odd about all this, of course, is that we tend to think that philosophy is really about theory and that practice is at best secondary. Of course, if Fatodo is correct, and I think he is, it's the other way around. Practice is first, and theory is secondary. One can find this emphasis on practice in numerous places in the Christian Bible. In Romans, Paul talks about presenting one's body as, quote, a living sacrifice, and he defines this act as spiritual worship. Romano Guardini says, The practice of the liturgy means that by the help of grace under the guidance of the church, we grow into living works of art before God. Now, if you think this is a kind of strange way of talking, consider that Paul also speaks of human beings as being God's poema, this is usually translated in English versions of the Bible 
as workmanship. But one could instead say that human beings are God's poem, or even God's work of art. Indeed, this way of thinking about human persons as works of art is as old as the ancient Greeks and as recent as Nietzsche and Foucault. Here's how the church father John Chrysostom puts it. As therefore happens in the case of painters from life, so let it happen in your case. For they, arranging their boards and tracing white lines upon them and sketching the royal likeness in outline, before they apply the actual colors, rub out some lines and change some for others, rectifying mistakes and altering what is amiss with all freedom. Consider that your soul is the portrait. Before, therefore, the true coloring of the spirit comes, wipe out habits which have been wrongly implanted. But there's another way in which we can make the point that practice is central to following Jesus. The philosopher of religion Ninian Smart has created a taxonomy of the seven different dimensions of religion. Now, I should point out that Smart intends these to apply to religion as a whole, but he also means that they can be applied to religions individually. Here are the seven dimensions. Ritual, experience, myth, doctrine, ethics, the social dimension, and then finally, the material dimension. Now, it's not important here to be concerned with the exact contours of Smart's taxonomy. But the taxonomy does show us that doctrine is a relatively small aspect of religion. If we take Smart's taxonomy at face value, doctrine is actually one-seventh of what constitutes religion. However, if one considers the contours of a discipline known as philosophy of religion, particularly as it's been practiced in the analytic philosophical tradition, then it quickly becomes clear that these other six dimensions have been given very little attention, both in general and proportionally. As the philosopher of religion Kevin Schilbrecht incisively notes, the doctrinal dimension of religions has received the lion's share of the attention from philosophers of religion. But the task of developing and defending religious doctrines tends to be the work of literate elites, typically from a leisured class and typically male. The interest in religious doctrines and arguments is a relatively small fraction of the lives of religious people, even in those communities that do make such issues central. If we were speaking of religions in general, it seems safe to say that most religions are not concerned with expounding and inculcating people with doctrines. But even within Christendom, the number of groups or denominations that define themselves primarily in terms of specific doctrines is limited. Further, even in groups that have strong doctrinal traditions, the average person in the pew is either not very familiar with them or else has only a limited understanding of what they are supposed to mean. Now consider the distinction Catherine Bell makes between what she calls orthodoxic and orthopraxic forms of religion. We touched on this earlier, but now I want to say a little bit more. Of course, she recognizes that the distinction between these two forms of religion is going to be a matter of emphasis rather than a concern of one over the other. So she writes, 
Whether a community is deemed orthodoxic or, or, or orthopraxic can only be a matter of emphasis, of course, since no religious tradition can promote belief or ritual at the total expense of the other, and many would never distinguish between them at all. Moreover, whatever the overall emphasis in a tradition as a whole, it is easy to find sub-communities stressing the opposite pole. Terms like orthodoxy or orthopraxy cannot be used effectively if accorded too much rigidity or exclusivity. <laughs> My guess is that most Christians would not even be able to explain the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Still, it's interesting that Bell claims the following about Christianity. As a result of the dominance of Christianity in much of the West, which has tended to stress matters of doctrinal and theological orthodoxy, people may take it for granted that religion is primarily a matter of what one believes. To be sure, there are people who think of Christianity as a set of beliefs to which one subscribes. However, most people identify as Christians would be hard-pressed to explain in much detail even the most basic Christian doctrines. And the reason for that is simply that doctrine is not a primary concern, and probably not even a secondary concern for most Christians. In other words, what I've been trying to say is Christianity is not principally about belief, but about life. But this discussion raises a further question. What exactly is religion? When scholars identify a group as being religious, what exactly are they identifying? That's the subject of the next podcast. Thanks for listening to Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. <laughs>